And over there in the ruined churchyard, in the ruined church steeple, the cracked bell is being activated by the night breezes. Suddenly I heard the plaintive cry of a young Mexican girl. All right, my lover. Sometimes uh, speakers come in with theme music, so I thought I'd pick a theme song. <laughs> Not actually. Um, you say, why in the world are you playing the theme song of the good, the bad, and the ugly? Well, because I like the song. Uh, actually, that was being played by the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain, who just played at the Wharton Center. And uh, they're an amazing group of about seven or eight uh, uh, guitarists primarily, and they play their ukuleles. There's a lot of humor and a lot of fun stuff that they do. They do everything from rock music to Bach, and uh, it's, it's just quite amazing. But uh, the good, bad, and the ugly, you might remember that as the iconic Western of the 1960s, which capa uh, catapulted Clint Eastwood to stardom uh, as one of the main actors of that. Again, you say, why start out a sermon on 2 Timothy with a theme song from the good, the bad, and the ugly? Because of this, Paul mentions 27 different people by name other than himself in this short little epistle. And they seem to fall into three categories. Guess what they are? The good, the bad, and the ugly. So in chapter 1... You've got Paul writing to Timothy, right? Verse 2. He's the first person that's mentioned. And he's a good guy. He's a godly guy. He has sincere faith, Paul says in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, which was in your grandmother, Lois, and then was also in your mother, Eunice. Also good people who, by the grace of God, had believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're seeking to sincerely follow him by faith. That's good. When you jump down, and we're going to see this in a moment, verse 15. Paul said, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus, however you pronounce that name, and Hermogenes, which means born of Hermes, the god. 
Now, these people, I would fit into the category of the bad. Uh, they might still be believers, but when Paul was rearrested in Rome, they were ashamed of him and afraid for their own skin, and they abandoned Paul. It's possible that they're not believers, but if they are believers, not living like believers should, let's put them in the category of the bad. Uh, you've got another guy in chapter 4 by the name of Demas, who once served with the Apostle Paul. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present age or present world. That's chapter 4, I believe, verse 10. And is Demas a believer? I'm not sure. It depends on what that word forsaken means. Is it just a period of time where, allured by the world, he has turned away from Christ and begins to follow uh, the trends and, and the beliefs of the world all around him? Or is that a real depiction of his heart, if that's the case, and he's not a believer? They went out from us because they were not really of us, John says. Because if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out to prove that they were not really of us. So we don't know where he is, but we might put him in the category of the bad. Now, the ugly are mentioned in chapter 2, verse 17, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who indeed deserted the faith and said the resurrection has never even taken place or it's already done. Their theology is all mixed up. And then in chapter 4, someone like Alexander the coppersmith, chapter 4, verse 15, uh, 14, he fits in the category of the ugly because Paul said he did me much harm. He opposed me. Watch out for that guy. So we'll not go through all of the 27 names, but I find it interesting that Paul, in his last letter, before he passes from this scene, wants to give credit where credit is due, and he also wants to acknowledge the dangerous out there, these people who have abandoned him or even departed from the faith. My question to you is, which category do you fit into? The good, the bad, or the ugly? As we go through this little letter, we'll have the power uh, and the opportunity, we'll have the chance and the opportunity to look at these, these individuals and maybe glean a little bit more about their biography. Actually, there is someone I want to say a word about. His name is mentioned in chapter 1, verse 16. And his name is... Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus is only mentioned in this letter. He'll be mentioned again in chapter 4. And notice, in contrast to the two mentioned in verse 15, this guy refreshed Paul because he was not ashamed of his chains. Now get the picture. Paul said to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me or of the Lord's testimony. That's verse 8, chapter 1. Many from Asia were ashamed of Paul when he was arrested and they fled. Like the two mentioned in verse 15. But Onesiphorus stood by my side. An Asian who was in Ephesus, the capital city of, uh, of Asia Minor. And he helped Timothy when Timothy was pastoring. He helped the apostle Paul. And so when Paul's arrested, he goes to Rome... 
And he's not ashamed to be identified with Paul. Verse 17, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me. Isn't that interesting, the contrast? Many were running from him. This guy is searching for him. That's a friend. It sticks closer than a brother, right? May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Some people believe he had died um, I, I don't think that's the case. I think he's just separated from his homeland and maybe he's not with Paul immediately. And Paul is just thankful for this guy's ministry. By the way, the word refreshed that is mentioned in verse 16, he refreshed me. A prisoner often relied upon friends and family to bring him food because sometimes the government of Rome wouldn't do that. The necessities of life were often not brought in. Or if they were, they were very sparse. And so you relied upon your family to come in and help you out. And that's exactly what is happening here. So Paul is saying to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Lord. And then he described how great the gospel is. It begins in, before eternity and it goes all the way to eternity. And it's supported by grace. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me, the one who's preaching the gospel and is imprisoned because of the gospel. Now when you come to chapter 2, and this is where I think it's a bit unfortunate that we have a chapter division. This ought to just flow into this challenge now that Paul gives to Timothy. So I'm reading in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1. He says, you then my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I want to talk to you for a moment about the power of grace. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Grace in a, is an amazing thing and it's a broad subject. Sometimes we narrow it with a simple definition. I mean I like the definition that says grace is God giving to us what we don't deserve and mercy is God keeping back from us what we do deserve. That's, that's a great helpful simple definition but that's, that's not good enough. It goes further than that. Grace is multifaceted like a diamond. And to look at all its angles and see it from different uh, perspectives its beauty shines and sparkles in our life for instance go back to chapter 1 in verse 2 and you have something that we might call greeting grace uh, grace was a common greeting grace and mercy to you and sometimes Paul would also add peace it was the hope that you would be filled touched by the grace of God God bless you, we will say, as we leave someone. It is that type of uh, connection. It's almost like a prayer or a wish. And so there is grace in the greeting. There's also grace in suffering. Chapter 1, verse 8. Paul said to Timothy, don't be ashamed to testify about the Lord or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel, how am I going to do that? By the power of God. The one who has saved us in his own purpose 
in grace. So there is this sense that you and I must learn to suffer by grace. Remember when Paul was thrown into jail in Philippi? This is Acts 16. And he was beaten. And in the middle of the night in jail in Philippi, what was he doing? He was singing. That's suffering grace. If you can sing in the midst of the storm, that's amazing grace. That's not normal. And God gives us the power to endure. To keep going when things are going against us, whether it's people or circumstances. God gives us the power by his grace to be patient and long-suffering. You say, I've been waiting for years. That may be the case. But marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. There's suffering grace. There's what we might call sovereign grace or serving grace. That's verse 9. We're saved not because of anything we have done, but we are saved by his mercy, by his grace. This great grace that came to us before the beginning of time. And because it's nothing we have done, we can even talk about pre-existing grace. It's part of the character of God. God has always existed. God never had a beginning. You see how grace can be looked at from so many different perspectives? Whatever your need, God's grace is there. Then you've got visible grace. And that's where Jesus reveals himself. Verse 10. Although the grace of God was given to us before time began, it was revealed to us in the person of Christ on the cross. God demonstrates his love for us. He demonstrates grace and mercy and peace. But here's one of the most exciting things about grace. Grace gets us into our relationship with Christ, but it's also grace that keeps us going. And so we can talk about strengthening grace. That's chapter 2, verse 1. Be strong in the grace that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that wonderful phrase that Paul loves to use to describe our relationship with Christ. We are in Christ. Like a container holding water. We are in Christ. Like you dwell in your house and sleep there at night. Christ becomes our atmosphere. He becomes our location. This phrase could also mean we do everything by the means of his grace. So be strong. Now who was Timothy? Timothy was this guy who was a little bit timid, right? We were told in 1 Timothy that he's got issues uh, health-wise, so he should take a little wine for his stomach's sake. He's young, don't be intimidated, don't let anyone despise your youth. Take charge, 
You've been gifted by God's grace. Don't be ashamed of that. And now in chapter 1, Paul had to say to him, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of boldness by grace. So after giving him the charge not to be ashamed and to join me in the suffering and to guard the gospel that has been given to you, he now says, be strong. Be brave. Be bold. And you do it by God's grace. If you go back in the scriptures, you'll find out that Timothy was... Uh, supposed to join Paul in suffering for the gospel. This is verse 8, chapter 1, by the power of God. And now he is to stand for the gospel boldly by the grace of God. Those aren't two different things. It's the grace of God that gives us the strength of God. And you cannot do it on your own. One of the problems with being an American, and there are many blessings, but one of the problems is that we have kind of ingrained in us the idea that I can do it on my own. It's the old American ingenuity. It's the American go for it yourself. It's the independence of it all. It's, it's don't rely on everyone else. And soon we began to incorporate that same attitude in our relationship with God. Did you pray today for grace to hear? Did, did I pray today for grace to speak? Nah, we just do, we do this all the time. We do it too much. I come every week to this place. I don't need grace to hear. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> did you pray to grace for breathe to, to breathe today? I don't need grace. Yeah, you do. You are totally dependent on the grace of God. The moment he takes it away from you, you know it. So Timothy, it's a big charge. I know it's beyond you. Everything God calls us to do is beyond us. Live a holy life, that's beyond you. But stand in the grace. We are justified by grace. Make sure you stand in that wonderful, amazing grace. By the way, Paul starts out in verse 1 of chapter 2 with an interesting phrase. We don't always see it in the English, but it's in the original, repeated several times. As for you, you then, in contrast to what I just said, as for you, live a different way. Don't abandon me. Stand in the grace that God gives. I like the Amplified translation. So you, my dear son, be strong, constantly strengthened, and empowered in the grace that is found only in Jesus Christ. Constantly empowered. The next thing Paul mentions in verse 2 is this idea of now the process of ministry. So we have the power of God to stand and to be faithful. But then he gives Timothy a challenge and a charge. He gives him a focus for how to do the work. And it's a famous focus. 
It's keyed on the word multiplication. And we have to see it in the context, first of all, from Paul to Timothy. Paul wants Timothy to come and see him. And that's mentioned in chapter 1. I remember your tears. I long to see you. Come and visit me. I know it's a challenge. I know you have to identify with a criminal. But be strong. Come and see me. I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus to fill in your role. But before you go uh, on your trip, before you come and see me, I want you to teach some faithful people the things you've heard me say in public in the presence of many witnesses. I want you to entrust these things to reliable people, to faithful people, verse 2, who will be qualified to teach others also. So in the immediate context, that's what Paul is saying. I don't want you to leave the church without direction. Tychicus is coming, but invest in people before you go. Reliable people who can carry on the work in your absence. That's the picture. However, however there is a general principle to be taken out of this that transcends all the eras, uh, all the time periods, the epochs of Christianity. And it is this. There's a process in ministry called multiplication. We are to invest our lives in other people who will carry on the work. This is really important because Paul's about ready to pass off the scene. And so he wants to make sure he's left a legacy. What kind of legacy are you going to leave? What category are you in, the good, bad, or the ugly? And secondly, what kind of legacy will you leave because you're in one of those categories? So here's the process, and it has four generations to it, and it starts out with the gospel being given to Paul. By the way, the word given is key here. Paul said, I'm an apostle not by the will of man, but by the will of God. He says in Galatians, uh, no one gave it to me. I saw Christ. He called me, and grace was given to me, and this gospel was deposited into my soul, and woe to me if I don't preach it. I have a charge to keep. In fact, some people... Some scholars even go back to that famous verse in chapter 1 where Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him in that day. Some people say that the original language allows for it to be read like this, that Jesus will keep what he is in charge to me until that day. That is, he will keep me faithful. And I've been given a deposit. And then he says to Timothy, you have been given, verse 14 of chapter 1, guard the deposit that you have been given. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. There it is again. It's by the power of God. It's by the Holy Spirit, the resident spirit who is in you, who gives you the grace of God to accomplish the plan of God which is bound up in the gospel of God. And that's been given to us. You haven't been given the gospel in the same way that a full-time minister perhaps has been given the charge. But you're a witness of Christ, you're a child of Christ, and you've been given the gospel. 
So we have to guard, protect, keep it from defilement, what God has given to us. Now, Paul then gives to Timothy, this is chapter 1, the gospel. He preached in, in Acts 14, probably on his first missionary journey, when at least Timothy's family came to Christ. And by the time we get to Acts 16, Timothy is one of the outstanding young men who is a follower of Jesus. And Paul says in chapter 1, the gospel has been given to you. I am your spiritual father. You are my dear son. He mentions that at the beginning of chapter 1, repeats it again in chapter 2, verse 1. You're my son, and I have deposited these things. So everything I've taught you, I want you to teach to others. There comes with the gospel a responsibility, not just to keep it, but to pass it on. Who are you passing the gospel on to? Your kids? Great. How about your grandkids? How about the neighbor kids? I mentioned a few weeks ago a family that used to pray for my brothers and I and we'd be, as we would be out in our backyard playing ball. And uh, there were three families around our outside fence and we described them as left field, center field, right field. And we would hit, hit the wiffle balls into their yards. And uh, center field was the Bauer family. And Donna Bauer used to pray for those kids who were playing ball and would sometimes hop the fence and get into her yard. Instead of yelling at us, she prayed for us. When I was pastoring in Greenville, Michigan, one Sunday night, I looked out in the crowd, and there was Donna Bauer. She'd come to hear the kid grown up preach. And she didn't care if it was good or bad, I'm sure, but she was crying. My preaching has that effect on people sometimes. <laughs> this is pitiful. <laughs> but she was crying, and I saw her, and I had to stop, and I was crying. In the providence of God, here's the woman that brought the gospel to me. I don't think she ever verbalized it, but she prayed for me. And when I came to Christ, I started attending a Bible-believing church. And who was a member there? Norma Bauer. Didn't even know it until I started attending. Pass it on. That's our responsibility. But it doesn't stop at second generation, third generation. Now, Timothy, what I've given to you, I want you to entrust, to give to reliable people. Very interesting word. Faithful people. People with character. It could mean those who have believed in Christ, people of faith, or probably those who are faithful in following Christ. But either way, it's sincere faith that is demonstrated by practical obedience. Find reliable people and invest your life in them. Sometimes Paul would say, oh, I'm afraid I've run in vain because I've poured myself into these people and they've departed from the faith, like Demas in chapter 4. But we shouldn't be too discouraged because Jesus had 12 and one of those was a betrayer. 
And the other 11 did pretty poorly for quite a while. But they were reliable people. Not perfect, but reliable. Look for reliable. Are you a faithful person that someone might choose to invest in? What an honor. But the people that you're investing in, that's not the end, the third generation. There's a fourth generation because you're not done until the people you're investing in can invest in others. And the cycle goes on and on and on. Right? So can you look back to your great spiritual grandfather? Grandmother? The one who invested in you? It was Paul to Eunice and Lois to Timothy to the leaders at Ephesus who are to be looking for others to invest in. Have you ever seen that show Tracing Your Roots Ancestry? I can't remember what it is, but uh, it's very interesting. And uh, they'll find a famous person and they'll go back and trace their ancestry. And people are in tears when they find out a little bit. Sometimes, again, because they're embarrassed. But sometimes because it is so amazing. Can you trace your spiritual ancestry? And if you can, have you ever gone back to those people and said, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. When you come to your dying day and you're penning your very last letter, it will be a rich blessing to you if you can say, by God's grace, I was able to point this person to Christ and this person to Christ, and they're going on pointing others to Christ. Give the gospel to others until they will pass it on to others who in turn will pass it on to others. And so it goes. There are three pictures that Paul gives. We don't have time to get into them, but he says, you know, this living for Christ and sharing the gospel is like a soldier and an athlete and a farmer. They have several things in common. There's a reward for what they're doing. They get paid for their work. But it's also difficult work. The soldier has the danger of being entangled in civilian affairs. So he's got to suffer by saying no. Timothy, join me in the suffering like a soldier. The athlete has to suffer by playing according to the rules and the self-discipline to make their body uh, into the the best they, they can be for their event. Timothy, join me in suffering like an athlete in training who says no to his own desires and competes according to the rules. Oh, and Timothy, join me in suffering like a farmer, a hard-working farmer. What's his danger? To be impatient, not to do the work when the sun is shining. Work hard, Timothy. And the farmer is the first to bear the harvest. The athlete gets the crown and the soldier gets his well done and his pay and perhaps a promotion when they stand strong in grace. The good, the bad, and the ugly. 
Which one are you? Let's pray. Our Father.